16 was um, a tricky time in America. And, it, and, it, and, it's, and it's really tricky if you're not in America at the time. And I don't forget someone asking me um, during the protest and riots during that period. A British guy came up to me. I was in Scotland. And he said, Esau, why are there troops? This is his question. Why were there troops in your cities? And I said to him, no, 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 no. You don't understand. And then they stopped me. And I said, wait, I don't understand. I don't understand what's going on in my country. And then I had this um, memory from when I was um, a history major in undergrad, this thing called the Red Summer. Many of you all know what happens after World War I. Many African Americans fought and died um, for this country. And they came back expecting new rights and privileges because of what they had seen when they'd gone abroad. And what followed in that was, one of, was a spike in, in, in lynchings and anti-black riots. Tons of black communities experienced lots of violence because the soldiers came back, wanted riots, and it's known in history as the Red Summer. And I, I thought to myself, as we got towards the end of what, be, what was the Obama presidency and what became, at the time we didn't know it, was the Trump presidency, I'm talking about the summer before that, I said, this is like the Red Summer, where African Americans experienced a bit of progress, and there's inevitably a violent backlash. You can see the same thing of Reconstruction. We're in this moment. And I had this real sense in which I had to change the way that I did my scholarship. That, that as important as the Bible is, I think the Bible is super important. If I studied the Bible completely detached from the suffering peoples of the world, it was going to do no good. And there was this quote, and hopefully this is the one that shows up next. Yeah, I was reading this book called Jesus and the Disinherited. And this is the quote. Many and varied are the interpretations. And this, one, this, this, this paragraph kind of was the, the fountainhead of what became reading my blog. Many and varied are the interpretations dealing with the teachings and the life of Jesus of Nazareth. But few of these interpretations deal with the teachings and the life of Jesus of Nazareth have to say to those who stand at a moment in history with their backs against the wall. They're the poor, disinherited, and dispossessed. What does our religion say to them? And I said, you know, I need to write something that would have been useful to me making sense of Jesus and the Bible when I was 16 years old being pulled over by those police officers. And so I said, you know, what if I tried to figure out what the Bible has to say about policing? Because I'm one of those Christians, those crazy Christians, who believe that the Bible is true. And that it speaks a word to us that demands our allegiance and compels our imagination. And so I said, well, hold on. What if I tried to start taking a look at policing in the New Testament? And what I found out is, shockingly, no one asked this question very often. I took ethics in seminary, and they taught us about a bunch of ethical issues. At no point did anyone ever address what would ethical policing look like. I said, wow, no one ever thought about this. And I'm not saying that no one has thought about it. I'm saying that it's rarely discussed amongst Christians, which is shocking given the long history of African-Americans speaking about how we're policed as a pressing ethical issue. So I started reading through my Bible, 
and there are only two, maybe three things that I could talk about in the time that I have. These are three passages that I think can begin to help us think through what it might mean to police people. The first one begins in the book of Romans, which may seem to be in a weird place to begin to talk about policing ethics in Romans 13. This is a famous passage where it says, basically, let everyone be subject to the governing authorities. In other words, the government is in charge. And then there's the part down at the bottom. But if you do what is wrong, you should be afraid. For the authority does not bear the sword in vain. It is the servant of God to execute wrath on the wrongdoer. The rulers, not a terror to good conduct but to bad. If you wish to have no fear of authority, then do what is good. You will receive his approval. What is God's servant for your good? If you do what is wrong, you should be afraid. And what I saw was, and this is the sentence that really, that really struck me. The authority does not bear the sword in vain. Now, for most of my life, when I read this passage, I thought about the military, that the, that, that, that the, the emperor has the power of the sword, such that August, Caesar Augustus can wage war. Did anyone else hear this about this? So the government's in charge. They wage war. They bear the sword. But one of the things I began to realize is that actually during Paul's time, or before Paul's time, Caesar had transitioned the government, I mean, the military to a standing army. In other words, he created a modern military force whose job was to be military people all of the time. And what we've heard of historically as the Pax Romana then is not an exterior peace in which Caesar went and conquered every place. It was an interior peace speaking about the peace within the empire. So to bear the sword, this statement that Paul says about bearing the sword is not simply about Caesar conquering new territory as the authority over the empire, but bearing the sword is a word about the governmental directives interior to the empire. The soldiers then weren't just outside of the empire. The soldiers were inside the empire. The soldiers were police officers. So Paul's statement about bearing the sword is a statement about bearing, about policing. So what is a police officer? It's an interesting question. They've actually thought about this, scholars, and they said that any organized unit of men under official commands whose duties involve maintaining public order and state control in a civilian setting. So you're a police officer if you're charged with maintaining order in a civilian setting. And if you kind of think back over your Bible, you immediately say, this is what the soldiers were doing. Remember, like during Jesus's last week, um, during Holy Week, who was around making sure the order was kept in place? The soldiers. They were performing a policing function. We don't think of it that way, but that's the closest equivalent. So the soldiers, Roman soldiers under Augustine, were charged with guard duty. See this in the Bible. Calming public disturbance. You see this also in the Bible. And crime investigation. So the Roman soldier was the closest thing that we have to a modern police officer. So the interactions between the Christians and the soldiers in the Bible are actually policing in, in, um, encounters. So I, I thought to myself, well, we can look at these narratives in which the Christians encountered police officers as a way of beginning to think about how we might function as um, a society and how we police our civilians. So 
Who police Rome? This is an interesting question. So Paul, I mean, Paul is writing this in the church in Rome. Who polices Rome? Well, there's one group called the Praetorian Guard. And they did not wear normal uniforms, like the military uniforms, and they were better paid than normal soldiers, and they, fought, they, they were around in the Roman, uh, in Rome, make, making sure that order was kept. So they were kind of the basic police force. Then there's another group, and I can't speak Latin. Anyone who speaks Latin here? Any Latin people? Latin speakers? How do I pronounce that first one? That's why I've always said, thank you. I just thought it. I, was, I feel good. Vigilus. I can, I can say it with confidence now. Vigilus um, began initially in, in Rome and other places as people who investigated arson. So they were the ones who were trying to, you know, you don't want Rome to burn down. So you, you need kind of a, a group of people who make sure that the fires don't get out of control. But since they did a lot of their investigations at night, it expanded to include petty crimes in the evening. So if you add the Praetorian Guard and the Vigilus, <laughs> you have about 10,000 people total who are charged with policing the city of Rome itself. And as a way of comparison, I think this might be a few years out of date, I haven't updated it, but there's about one soldier per, one police officer per 90 citizens, uh, 90 people in New York City. There's about one per 100 people in Rome. So basically, Rome had the same amount of soldiers per person as New York does with its police force. So it's actually a pretty close analogy. So where might you find, where might you encounter these people, these police officers, if you were a Christian who was just meandering around Rome on any given day? Well, oftentimes the police were out in force during major festivals and events of the city's life. So whenever there was a party, things get out of hand. I think there's a Lakers series going on right now, right? Oh, okay. I trust me, I'm team LeBron. I hope his foot feels better. Okay. But you all know that if the Lakers win a championship, which we hope happens, amen, <laughs> we're going to need some extra police force out for that celebration, right? Has there been a championship in LA recently? Did it, no, there hasn't been one? 20, uh, that was the pandemic one, so we didn't get to celebrate that one. And so if you have, when you, whenever you have a major festival, you know that you need extra police force. It's also what you see in the New Testament. You're in Passover, extra police force. You also see the police officers involved in tax collecting. Believe it or not, they kind of go door to door or business to business to, to, collect, to collect taxes. But if you just show up as the tax collector, people aren't going to listen to you. So you know what you would often do? You'd hire out and you bring with you parts of the guard who would accompany you to the collecting of taxes. So you'd see the police when you were at the festivals. You'd also see the police around the time of tax collecting. The other place is if you were at the market. Because one of the things they used to do in the market is they had scales to weigh and balance, the, to, to judge the money and these other things. And sometimes, well, this, this would be crazy to believe, that people in the ancient day were, were corrupt. And so they would, they, would, they would game the scales. And if you game the scales, that could lead to a disturbance between you and the person you're conducting your business with. You needed a, a police force around major businesses to calm down any disturbances, kind of like what we'd have today. Back when we used to go to malls, right, you'd have police officers who'd be kind of around the malls and those other areas where businesses occurred. 
The last place where you might find a lot of police officers, you just simply lived in the wrong neighborhood. There's a lot of times where you, when they're investigating petty crimes and fires and when there's trouble, if you just live in one of those neighborhoods, you're apt to run into police officers. So shockingly, the Christians at Rome would encounter um, the, the policing forces, many of the same kinds of places we might encounter police forces, at um, places of commerce. And there's tons of stories about African-Americans and others who felt like they had injustice precisely at places of commerce, at major parties and events and festivals. You'd also have the police officers there. You'd also see the police officers if you lived in the wrong neighborhood, and also you see the police officers vis-a-vis -vis around money and tax collection. So what does Paul say about policing? So now that you understand who these, what it means to bear the sword and have the authority over these people, what does it mean to look at Paul's statements in light of what we just said about what police officers may have done? Paul speaks about the duties of the government to direct the soldier. It's really important. He says, Caesar bears the sword. In other words, he says, Caesar tells the soldiers what they're supposed to do. So he recognizes then that the attitude towards the civilians comes from the government. Caesar directs the sword. Now what does this actually mean then for a Christian who lives in a representative democracy? We don't live in an empire where it's just Caesar who directs the sword. Like if Paul didn't like what Caesar did, he couldn't fire off a hot tweet, and <laughs> you know? He, 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 could, he couldn't protest it. He's like, off with your head. But the crazy thing about this is we live in a representative democracy. Who directs the sword in our republic? We do. We the people. We choose representatives who then set policies, then directs the sword. So for the Christian then, it's our job. This is what I decided. You all can say that I'm wrong. It's our job to elect representatives will create a culture of policing in which the sword is directed to do what is right and good and just. Now, we will leave aside this part about judging corrupt leaders in another time, because that's a question for another day. What I really want you to get, aside, get across here then is that when we hear Romans 13, we read, submit to those who are in authority because they were put in place by God, and they're the ones who are in charge of stuff, and there's nothing to do about it. But we put the people in charge. So in other words, I think in a representative democracy, you do actually have something that you can do, namely elect people who create a culture of government. And if we have a culture in which people aren't policed fairly, then it's actually our failure as citizens. So all this to say is I don't actually think African-American claims about policing are all that complex, such that we need to um, call for radical things. Actually, I think that all we want is exactly what Paul says. Paul says, rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. And if that were true, I think there'd be no complaints about policing in the United States. Because when I had done nothing wrong, I was afraid. And I think I had legitimate reason to be afraid because there's a long history of people who've been innocent of the 
innocent or not deserving of death for the things that they've done. They've experienced harm. So what kind of theology, theology of policing am I suggesting? I'm suggesting that Christians in a representative democracy are responsible for creating a culture in which innocent people are not afraid. Or guilty people, even those who are guilty, are still treated with dignity and respect. One of the things I've always found to be really odd um, amongst Christians is how we litigate life after someone has died. In other words, if something happens to someone, we go back and we look at their life choices and we say, look, this person was a bad person, therefore the thing that, they, that happened to them, they deserved it, which seems to me to be a profoundly unchristian way of thinking about things. Because it is precisely the lies that are unfinished that are the most worthy of protection. In other words, I'm going to be upset at some person who was a, a good, upstanding member of society, who paid their taxes, who loved Jesus and went to church every day. They died. Yes, I'm going to be mad. But I know about where they were spiritually. But there's some person who has not yet found their way. And they're still meandering here and there. That's the life. I, we need to give them enough time to figure it out. Because one of the things that, that, that I'm convinced of is that none of our stories are ever over. And if you, if you had paused my life at 16 or 18 and I had gotten shot and killed, they would have said, just another black boy from inner city, Huntsville, Alabama. And they would have looked at my CV up to 16 or 18 and said, there's nothing good that's going to come out of this community and out of this neighborhood. But God knew that my story wasn't over yet. And so I actually have the opposite reaction when I find out that someone has potentially lived a rough life. And then I said, no, no, that's the real tragedy. They didn't live long enough, or the opportunity to live long enough to potentially figure it out. So Nina Simone, they asked Nina Simone, um, famous jazz singer, one of the best voices of all time, you know, what would freedom look like for a black person? And she didn't know that she was dealing with Paul, but I think Sharon Paul was saying the same thing. Freedom is no fear. Freedom is no fear. So what I want to suggest then is that Paul's statements in Romans 13 gives us the tools to say that it's our responsibility as Christians to create a culture in which people can live free of fear. And even those who are guilty of the crime for which they are being arrested, they remain persons. So a theology of policing as a Christian has to arise out of a theology of persons. That every single person, no matter who they are and what they've done, remain image bearers and are worthy of dignity, honor, and respect. Now, that's a world, that's a global picture of policing in the Roman Empire and what Paul has to say about it. There's another um, place we cannot talk about these larger ethical questions about structures of society, but individual police officers. Like, what might it look like to do one's job ethically individually as a police officer. And interestingly enough, this comes up in our Bible too. You know the story of John the Baptist? You heard of him? Okay. <laughs> An important guy. John the Baptist is, is preaching, um, and the different people are coming up to John to be baptized. You know this part? And the, each group is asking John, what should we do? And actually some soldiers come up to John, and they say to John, what should we do? And John says, be satisfied with your wages. Be satisfied with your wages and don't extort people. It's really interesting, right? It's really interesting. It's an interesting statement that he makes. 
Because I think extortion and being satisfied with your wages gets to the connection between money and policing. Because what does extortion mean? It means that if you don't pay me, I'm going to charge you with the crime, right? So the police officer, the soldier comes up to Rome, to, to a citizen, and they're collecting taxes, and they say, I need 40 more dollars in these taxes in order to, to line my pockets. And if you don't pay me, then you're going to find yourself accused of a crime. In other words, they're using their power as soldiers to take advantage of people without power. He recognizes the power imbalance. And this is actually true. As a police officer in the United States, you have more power. And so what John is calling upon police officers to do is relatively simple. Do your job with integrity. Because all of us, all of us live in places where whatever the system says, you have to decide how you're going to live your life individually. You might, be, you might live in a cutthroat business world where the business ethics are you step on and destroy whoever and whatever you need to do in order to get ahead and you pay your workers as little as you can to maximize your profits. And you have to decide, you know what? I'm not going to conduct business that way. I'm going to pay my people a living wage. I may not be able to change the entire socioeconomic system of the United States, but I can be an ethical business person. And so here, I think that what John is saying to the soldier, interestingly enough, he doesn't say resign from, the, like resign from soldiering. He actually doesn't say that. He doesn't say that the work of a soldier is inherently evil. He just says, soldier with integrity, which I think is relatively fair. So it is a call then for the officer in power to rise above the corrupting influence of the imbalance of power and to treat individuals as image bearers. Now the other thing that I want to suggest then, and this is the, this is the part that I don't think often gets, taken, gets um, considered. Soldier, police officers and soldiers often see humanity at its most broken. They're only called in when things go wrong. So they see crime, domestic abuse, drugs, violence, day in and day out, week in, week out. And one of the things that I've noticed is that churches tend to do one or two things. They, they kind of verbally say, we support our police, and they maybe they're aware that we support the blue tech. But the question I want to ask is, and I, and I can say this because my wife was in the military, She's a reservist now. People would often say, we support our troops. But you think that simply saying that is supporting your troops, but it's actually not. It's not. In other words, having a, political, a positive political disposition towards police officers doesn't do anything for them. And I can say that maybe because I was a, um, a part of a family that was in the military. And so what I want to ask is, are we actually giving the people in our communities who are charged with policing the tools to emotionally process the things that they see without becoming embittered and cynical. We actually, in other words, are we giving them a theology of persons that allow them to do their job well? In other words, policing is a particularly taxing job, almost like being in the military, and we're not giving them spiritual and psychological services that will help them to do this, then they might themselves struggle to process this, this kind of job. One of the interesting things to this, too, is like I, I teach at a Christian college. I love Wheaton. It's a great place. So I'm not going to be mean to them. But I, was, I noticed that like if I asked them how many of your parents love, like, like the police, and they all say, yes, we, they, they respect our, our police officers. I said, okay, 
How many of you want to be police officers? And almost none of them raise their hand. And none of their parents want them to be police officers. Right? And so in other words, it's, it's, it's honored as a concept, but most people don't want their children doing that job. What does it mean then that Christians have largely abandoned many of the service industries? And we think that because we vote in a certain way, we've actually done what it means to love and serve our, the people charged with policing us well. And I think that Christians have a long way to go in figuring out how can we engage with the policing forces, help them develop a, a positive anthropology, an understanding of what a person is, so that our community is policed well. So it's not just simply saying things, it's actually doing things. So, last one. How much time do I have? Oh, I have like five minutes. Okay. So what I've done so far is I, I tried to look at um, policing as a concept, like in Romans 13. And I think the New Testament has speaks to um, policing as a concept. Also, there are resources in the New Testament to speak about policing as it relates to individual soldiers. And I just thought that this interesting, and I don't have time other than to point at this, is the trial. The New Testament makes, now, and I want, I, if we had time, you were in my theology classes, we would talk about Jesus' death as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Like, we're just going to take that as a given, right? So, like, you know that part, that Jesus died for your sins dead. I'm assuming you guys know that part. We're going to not talk about that part, even though it's really important. We're going to look at what the New Testament also teaches about it. The New Testament makes it clear that Jesus' death was an injustice, especially as it relates to the actions of the soldiers who were under, who had charge over him. So it says in Mark 15, they led him to the palace, they put a purple robe on him, they twisted together a crown of thorns and set it upon him. They began to call out, Hail, King of Jews, and they struck him with the, on the head and a staff, and they spit on him, and they fell on their knees, they paid homage to him. And some of them spit, they said they, um, they blindfolded him, they struck him with their fists, and they prophesied, and the guards took him and beat him. This is actually um, mentioned across the gospel stories, that while in custody, Jesus was mistreated. And that was seen as an injustice. What I want you to think about, and this gets to the previous point we just made, what kind of person beats people who are under arrest? And they put a crown of thorns on his head so that he bleeds. And they punch him and they spit upon him. It's people who see people under arrest as less than fully human, and worthy of no respect or dignity at all. So yes, it was disrespectful for this to happen to the Son of God. My suggestion is it's disrespectful for it to happen to anyone. And you're supposed to read these stories and be, be repulsed by what you see. And because we as Christians often think about, Jesus did this for me, we lose the fact that what John and what the gospel writers are showing you is how the empire polices its citizens. How ungodly people treat those who are under its thumb. And it's hard for me not to notice this same phenomenon of African Americans who are afraid, amongst other people, who are afraid about what happens to them once they're in custody. This exact issue. 
that we've seen the videos and heard the testimonies of how people talk about us as mere criminals who don't deserve basic dignity and respect. I don't think you've seen some of the um, recent stories about people who died in custody um, in the last few months. I think that this shows you that these people, um, I want to say this, they were tasked with crucifying people. Where you had to nail, I mean, apart from Jesus, they crucified people all of the time. It was a part of their daily, well, not daily, their regular work. Where you nailed people to crosses, you hung them up, and you suffered and watched them die. And you can't crucify people repeatedly without it doing something to your soul. So in other words, the Roman Empire created a form of policing that required the dehumanization of persons in the empire, which did something to the souls of the people who were charged with policing the empire. So we owe it to our people who are charged with policing us to create a culture of law enforcement doesn't require them to, to treat people like less than human. Not good for them, it's not good for us. So what might a theology of policing look like? I think a theology of policing might look like this where Christians recognize it's part of their duty as citizens in a democratic republic to elect officials who create a culture of policing that allows for the humanization of both the criminal or the accused and the law enforcement officer. And that we point towards that. And it, it comes from a value of every single human life it's not being over or concluded. I think a theology of policing allows us to say to individual officers who are charged with, charged with the work of policing that under, in an imperfect circumstance, the system, what is really called upon for you to do, and this may seem to be not as profound as you might suggest, to do your job with integrity. And that, that we as the church provide a space for you to think, pray, and reflect on what it might look like. Thank you. I, I, I went one minute over my time. Do I, have to, do I need to let them go or do I accept questions? What should I do? You are free. What am I doing? Oh, tomorrow in the same space, right? So tomorrow I will be giving a theology of justice. And so a lot of people talk about justice, like what does it actually mean to talk about justice as a Christian? Um, and there's no PowerPoint, so we will not be defeated by technology. Uh, but we're just going to walk through what does the Bible mean when it, when it speaks about justice. And I'm going to talk about that. So um, thank you. Hopefully I'll see you then. <laughs>